Hello and welcome to the last episode of the first series of the new realities of cybersecurity. My name is Ian Todd. I'm a data privacy and cybersecurity consultant here at PwC. Today I'm joined by Louise Taggart, a threat intelligence analyst. We'll be discussing the changing world of threats from state-sponsored attacks to the new techniques which individuals and malicious groups are adopting. Louise, well, thank you very much for joining us. I'm really excited about this subject. I don't know a huge amount about this, so I think it'd be a really good learning opportunity for everyone, hopefully the people listening as well. Um, your background in particular is quite fascinating, I think. I noticed that you speak six languages straight off the bat. Um, so and I know you're in, involved with threat intelligence. So I guess a good starting point would be to find out a little bit more about what that is, what your background and how you ended up in PwC in this position as well. Yep, so thank you very much for having me today. Um, so my background is I joined the firm about a year and a half ago and I come from a um, completely non-technical background. So joining a technical team here, here at PwC was, was quite a step change for me. Um, my background, um, as you mentioned, is more in languages and linguistics. I studied Russian at university um, and then um, that spiralled into studying a few more East European languages as well. Um, and after university, I worked mainly in political risk, um, which was focused on um, the former Soviet Union region. Um, I also worked for a think tank, which focused on security and defence research matters, and then transitioned to the team here at PwC that's working on um, threat intelligence in particular. Amazing, amazing. And I think it's really interesting that you haven't come from a really technical background into this, because I, I straight away thought you must have some kind of technical um, IT or background. So you're language based, and then it's kind of evolved over time into where you are now. And I suppose the next part is, so what is threat intelligence? What does that involve? Um, so threat intelligence at a very sort of basic level is helping clients understand who is targeting them. Um, particularly with a, with a focus on the cyber domain, obviously. So this might be looking at um, different threat actor groups that are out there at the minute and are particularly active, um, looking at the particular methods they use, um, what kind of tactics and techniques do they have in their, um, their skill sets, and what sort of information they go after. So what sort of um, intellectual property or, um, or data are they going to be looking for on a, on a, on a particular system or network? Incredible. Is this something that's just over the last five years popped up or is this something that's been going on for, for 20 years? I, I think from my own perspective, I haven't heard a huge amount about it. So is this something that's growing at the moment? Yeah, so threat intelligence is, is really a growing sector at the minute um, and has kind of evolved over the past five to 10 years. Um, I think one of the benefits of being here at, at PwC actually is that we're quite unique in that we have both technical specialists and also people from a non-technical background like myself who can offer more geopolitical analysis to what we're seeing. What, what does that mean? So you will be looking obviously from a non-systems technical point of view. Are you looking at the social um, environment of a, of a certain country? Are you looking at the political environment? Is that the kind of things that you're looking at? And then from there, kind of distilling that down into potential groups that may cause issues or potential um, threats that may come from that? Is that the kind of thing that you're doing? Is that right? Yeah, that's, a, that's it, exactly. Right. Um, so with a background in political risk and analysis and with a knowledge of different cultures and countries, um, I can help clients understand the geopolitical context they're operating in. So that might be looking at um, different countries they have offices in, um, maybe companies that they have joint ventures with or have third party relationships with and help them understand how that might be 
be able to shape their particular threat profile. And is that always moving? I suppose, I guess it's different in the UK, but we have new leaders potentially every four years. I guess the US is similar. Do we see quite radical changes when new people take over in power? Is that something that affects this quite drastically? Yeah, I think the geopolitical landscape is constantly changing. Um, I think, you know, if you, if you look just at the minute, um, how many how many shifting um, alliances there are, um, not just in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe, in Asia um, and in the Americas. It's definitely something that's constantly changing and evolving. Yeah, it must be so difficult to keep up with that um, constantly. I can only imagine. I, mean, I, I imagine there's certain parts of the world that this is happening more than others and you've got to keep shifting your attention. So how difficult is it for you guys to kind of see the horizon and see where things are moving to? Is that a difficult thing for you to do? Um, I think it definitely keeps us on our toes. Um, I think there's always there's always new trends emerging and there's always new events um, that you have to keep an eye on. Um, so we tend to focus on the main countries that we see activity pertaining to, whether that be threat actors that are based there or, or countries that we know that our clients particularly operate in. Um, but it is a constantly shifting environment. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess on that constantly shifting note, the, the actual threats themselves, the techniques that these groups or whatever these states are using must be changing as well throughout time. Um, so, so what kind of things have you seen? How has that shift happened? So we're definitely seeing that a number of threat actor groups are becoming much more sophisticated in the kind of techniques and tactics that they use. Um, if you compare the landscape now to how it was maybe, say, 10 years ago, when um, you would get spam emails pretending to be from um, a former royal royal family member right. or right. Um, a long-lost cousin um, asking for you to transfer them cash. Um, obviously, these kind of um, emails still exist. We all probably yeah. still still receive them. Yeah. But increasingly, you're seeing the more sophisticated threat actor groups put quite a lot of effort and resources into um, much longer term reconnaissance. So this might be targeting very specific executives using social media platforms to research them and their um, activities, knowing when they go on holiday, knowing who their personal assistants are and how to frame um, spear phishing emails mm. to make them much more realistic. And spear phishing is targeted phishing attacks and phishing being um, they send you an email which tries to extract information from you so they pretend that they're from a bank and they'll say oh your bank account's been shut down we need these details we've got this so far but we need this to finish it off uh, am I right in thinking that? That's that it exactly so phishing emails are the kind of generic tend to be um, sent out to large numbers of people at the same time um, PayPal is one good example of a, of a phishing email that people I think quite frequently receive when it's evidently not from from that particular company. Spear phishing emails are much more tailored to a specific person or individual. Um, often they tend to be quite high up in an organisation or, or maybe have access to, to cash. Interesting. I heard, I guess it's similar to this, it's not quite spear phishing, but there was a, an organisation in China that was looking to find out information about an American firm and they falsified a profile on LinkedIn who was the CEO of this American firm and started adding who they thought were his friends and people that he may be associated with. And because he didn't have a profile, no, it, it wasn't kind of flagged up anywhere. And they actually managed to map out the CEO's closest friends, who he worked with, if he was in contact with other companies. And these kind of things, this kind of reconnaissance, I guess, is it leaves people so vulnerable, doesn't it? This is the, and I guess this is what you're trying to educate organisations on and, and try and prevent them from falling for this kind of this kind of issue. Exactly. I think a lot of um, it's around 75 to 80 percent of attacks that that companies see um, are actually relatively low sophistication. Um, so things like 
phishing emails, but it's it's educating users and employees about how susceptible they are to, to receiving these kind of things. Um, but as you say, there's also examples of, of, um, of groups that will use much more um, sophisticated means of, of gaining access to um, somebody's network using social media platforms. Um, I think as well it's important to raise awareness of, of how much information we do put out there. Um, and it's not necessarily just the executive that's being targeted, it's maybe their family members or their friends who put information in, um, in the cybersphere and don't think of the consequences that this can have on, on their their relatives. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so in terms of success, how successful are these attacks? Um, obviously, I guess you can raise awareness about the threats. Do we see 100% of spear phishing attacks become successful? And are we seeing a decrease over time or is this increasing? I try to get a feel for how, how well this is actually working for the, uh, the bad guys. It's, it's actually really difficult to quantify, partly because a lot of organisations don't like to release that kind of data showing what their vulnerabilities are, um, but also because people who are compromised might not even realise they have been. Um, so this can happen where someone's been compromised and they're lying dormant, I guess, in the person's system or with their information and they can keep that for a while, I guess, and then use it at a different point. Is that, is that what you mean by... By that. Exactly. If it's um, if it's an employee and it's their um, corporate email account that's been compromised, if the company itself doesn't have the right kind of network detection and monitoring in place, then the company might not realise that its systems have been compromised. Um, if it's an individual, if it's somebody's personal Gmail or Hotmail account, for example, um, they might not know that there's now somebody sitting using a particular malware that might be logging their keystrokes, stealing their passwords for online banking accounts, that kind of thing. And as a as a person who doesn't have a huge amount of wealth or isn't an executive, an organisation, this is still an issue for them as well, I guess. So they can lose their personal information, I suppose fraud, things like that. Are these the kind of issues that the normal person in the street will see? Exactly. I think the kinds of attacks that make the headlines tend to be when it's the big corporations and organisations that are breached and maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of people's worth of data has been leaked or stolen. Um, but I think it's it's definitely something that everybody should be aware of, that you know, personal information is something that can be monetized and is therefore um, an attractive target for, for a criminal. And I guess, going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, obviously in some cases there's a big state sponsorship around that, so in, in I guess normal language that means a country or a government of a country is providing the funding to allow this to happen. Is that what we're seeing now? Is this predominantly driven by states or is this just actors within the state who are completely independent of the government? I mean, what's the, the feeling around that? So in threat intelligence, um, in the team here, we tend to break down threat actors into four four different groups. Obviously, it's not an exact science, but this is the kind of methodology we use. And that's cyber criminals, so those who go after your bank account login details to steal funds so from... So organised crime, would that be? Is that Yeah, organised yeah. crime. Um, Hacktivists, so groups like Anonymous who have a particular vendetta or motive and um, will use cyber methods to, to, to promote their, their particular um, ideology. Um, saboteurs, so that might be um, groups that are looking to disrupt national infrastructure, for example, um, and state-sponsored espionage. Right. Um, Again, it's difficult to quantify or to break down into exact percentages what how cyber activity is, is broken down into those four groups. Um, and with state-sponsored espionage, um, attribution is always 
a difficult thing to manage. So knowing exactly who's been behind a particular attack to 100% degree of certainty is, is almost impossible. Yeah. Um, and this is actually where it's, it's important to have both technical and strategic analysts because you can use technical research, so looking at the particular infrastructure that was used in an attack, so that might be the particular websites that have been compromised or email addresses that are associated with the attack, and combining that with a strategic understanding as well. Um, can help you to a to a better degree, maybe identify who's been behind a, a certain attack. So I know it's quite a contentious issue, but is there examples of where you've seen state-sponsored uh, action happening? Yeah, so there's obviously um, a lot of coverage of, of different cases at the moment in the media. Um, one that particularly springs to mind was um, in 2015 when a French media company was actually the target of an attack which took down its website and some of its TV channels. Um, at the time, um, a group calling itself the Cyber Caliphate posted a message online claiming that it was them who had, who had um, carried out the attack and was affiliating itself with Islamic State. Um, so it was very much taken on face value that that was who had yeah. committed it. Um, however, the French authorities and some private security companies did a bit more research into, into the tactics and techniques that had been used. Um, and it transpired that actually it was um, likely to have been a Russia-based group that had carried out the attack rather than this so-called cyber caliphate. So how did they get away with not being directly affiliated with this attack? So it, it actually transpired that the group believed to be based in Russia that was actually responsible for the attack had routed their um, attack through Brazil. So they'd managed to hide their footprints by using um, a um, infrastructure that was located in a completely different country, um, sort of deflecting attention away from the apparent original source. Interesting. So I, I guess one of the big things that we find in state-sponsored attacks is trying to steal intellectual property from other companies or other countries. And uh, something that we discussed in our team um, is that there was an organisation in China that they were believed to have been state-sponsored who were stealing intellectual property from Vauxhall. And it was actually, it transpired that it, they'd stolen exactly what Vauxhall had um, to the point where there were spelling mistakes in the manuals of the cars. So when they tried to say, oh, it wasn't us, we, you know, I think it's quite well known that car blueprints or however the cars are built, there's exact models that you see in Asia that we have over in Europe. Um, but to the point where they actually had taken their intellectual property in the manual, everything was taken. So I shows, it shows you how vulnerable um, organizations are and there's so much stuff available now if you can break into a system um, you, you really can take everything from, from an organization I suppose. Yeah I think what's interesting from the point of view of state-sponsored cyber activity is that different nations have different motivations so for example some countries are motivated by gaining access to intellectual property and um, and using that for their own um, ends. So that might be developing their own domestic markets or um, manufacturing. Um, some countries focus more on domestic opponents to, the, to a regime or dissidents um, and targeting them to find out their, who their contacts are, what their activities are. Right. Um, and, some, and some nations are more intent on sort of promoting their own national interest. So they might be much more overt activities than, than others. Interesting. So I suppose the question is who who should care about this? Is this just a, a state government interest or is this big financial sector, uh, banking or retail or is it, is it all of us? Do we, who, who does this encompass? 
It is, it is everybody. Um, I think the focus tends to be on implications for large organisations because it's when they're breached that, that attacks really make the headlines. Um, but it really is a, is a concern for everybody. Um, I think on an individual level, it's not just making sure that we take um, sensible precautions with, say, for example, two-factor authentication on email, but it's also being aware of which companies have our personal data and how that's being protected. Um, I think for um, a number of high-profile sectors, it's obviously of key importance. So you already mentioned the financial sector, for example, and they're a target not just because of the the vast um, assets they hold. So, for example, um, um, cash um, and and personal data as well, but it's also in things like employee data and HR data. For the defence sector, it might be intellectual property, it might be confidential or top secret um, projects that they're developing for the government or nation states. Um, and at a at a government level. Um, it's very much um, a priority for securing things like critical national infrastructure, um, securing um, defence operations, whether they be abroad um, or networks at home. Um, so it really is something that, that everybody should be concerned with. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, from my own experience, a, a classic thing I've seen where, talking back on spear phishing, where they will directly aim emails at the financial department. And they'll say, hey, it's uh, Ian here, the CEO of this company. I need you to release this fund to these guys over here. And I think historically, and you'll know this better than I do, but historically it's just happened. And there hasn't been a protocol in place where people say, well, hang on, let me double check this. Is there other areas of, uh, of identity that we can make sure that the person that's actually contacting us is the right person? Um, and people have kind of released funds, haven't they? And there's the stories of millions of pounds being released through fraudulent emails and, and, and different things. Um, and Obviously, that's a big issue for organisations, but that can also obviously happen for you and I as well, as a, as a, a person who is not associated with an organisation, just in your own personal life. If someone was to steal your identity, you know the, the fraud that can happen around there, take credit cards out or loans under your name. And it sounds like there's a lot of vulnerabilities, and I guess there probably is, um, but it's quite realistic, isn't it? These things can't happen. Exactly. As you said, there's been a lot of cases in the media. Um, there's been a, a, a number of, of cases reported recently of what we call business email compromise, which is exactly as you described. It's somebody pretending to be a legitimate employee or colleague, um, emailing somebody in maybe the payroll department or who has access to the accounts and asking for a transfer to be made. Um, and if it's written in such a way that it's um, you know, it, it really replicates the nature or the, the demeanour of the person who's purporting to be sending it, then, you know, there's no reason that the recipient should necessarily be suspicious of the validity of, um, of this email. And I, there's a, a really interesting story, actually, from your team, and this was all ethically allowed. Um, for a client, they were challenged to try and find the CEO's bank details through technical and non-technical um, approaches. And what they ended up actually doing was, and I think this is fascinating, they, they found a picture of him in front of his Aston Martin, I guess, um, a really old classic car, and they saw the tax disc, and it was about to run out in a certain month. They also found his mobile number on a charity website that he was a board member of, and they called him up and said, hey, we're calling from whoever the insurance provider is. Uh, we know your insurance is about to run out next month. He had a, oh yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. We just need your bank details, we'll, we'll sort it out for another year for you. And he got all the bank deals, straight over. And it's as simple as that. And he didn't even for a second think about this. And 
obviously the big thing for us was we went in there, did a presentation and said, we got all your stuff. And he said, no, it's impossible. You couldn't have. And it was that simple. He thought we must have broken in through here and done this. But in actuality, it was a simple phone call from a picture of Facebook. And that's how crazy this can be, isn't it? I think people think it's going to be these really elaborate, incredibly complex state-sponsored attacks, when actually it can be a, a simple picture that you put on social media. That's it, exactly. And I think often um, we don't put two and two together, um, that the information you put out there can be manipulated and exploited yeah. to, for nefarious purposes. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about threat intelligence, what this means, what's happening out there and the different threats. I think everyone's terrified now who will be listening to this. So I think what we need to try and understand is what PwC are doing as an organization, uh, what we're trying to provide for our clients, what we're doing for organizations out there and our general education as well. So I think we have a really unique offering in the threat intelligence space. Um, so as I mentioned before, um, the team, the threat intelligence team here has both technical and strategic analysts, myself being one of the strategic analysts. Um, and that really means that we can offer clients um, a full understanding of what their threat landscape is. So not only on a very technical level, but also from a wider business strategy point of view as well. The wider team also incorporates uh, instant response and network detection. Um, and we have a very um, holistic relationship between the three components of the team. So on the instant response side, um, the threat intelligence team is able to feed in um, our most up-to-date and, um, and actionable threat intelligence so we can offer guidance and insight into what um, threat actors um, are targeting and what their current activities are. Um, it also means that the incident response team can feed back fresh and up-to-the-minute data from the um, data breaches that they respond to. So, for example, that might be the kind of infrastructure that threat actors are using at the moment um, or what kind of um, lure documents they're using. Um, and the team also comprises a network detection component, and that means that, again, the threat intelligence part of the team can feed in um, up-to-the-minute and um, really fresh data about what kind of infrastructure threat groups are using. So that might be, um, for the uninitiated, it might mean um, particular um, file names that threat actors are using, and then the network detection team can go out and, um, and monitor for those kind of um, flags coming up on, on our clients' networks. Amazing. So it's, it's not just about after an incident has happened or before. It can be everything. It can be you can plan strategically for the future. And we're also there to help you guys out if something's went wrong as well. That's it. Exactly. Um, I think we're really well placed to be able to offer um, a full service to our clients. Everything from um, really from from initiating an understanding of what your threat landscape looks like all the way through to helping you respond if or when, unfortunately, you might have a, a data breach. And that was going to be my next kind of point. I, I guess the need for this will continue to grow over the next 10, 20, 30 years, because the more interconnected we get, the more that we rely on digital data or digital information, I suppose the more vulnerabilities that present themselves and the more we need to understand what's happening in the, the larger world around us. That's it, exactly. I think the workplace is really um, undergoing a huge digitalization process at the minute. Um, everything from e-commerce and online banking through to bring your own devices to work. Um, there's only going to be more vulnerabilities opening up to, to companies and, and our clients. I think interesting on that point as well about bringing your own devices to work, I think we'll see a real clouding of um, organisation you, so when you're working for your company, and your personal life. And I think that'll be quite interesting as well because we're going to see a real amalgamation of data from everywhere. So no longer are they going to be targeting just the individual or the organisation, but I suppose they'll target you as a bit of both. And you'll probably show weaknesses from, from either side, I guess, as well. 
I think you're completely right that it's something that needs to be addressed both at an individual level but also at a corporate level, that there is an increased blurring, um, things like social media, um, um, you know, there's the social media that's um, aligned to professional interests and social media that you use for your, you know, day to day personal life. But increasingly, the lines between those are becoming blurred um, and that opens up um, both the individual and um, businesses to, to much greater risks. Well, I think it's been fascinating. I, I really appreciate you coming here and talking about this. Um, I, I imagine we're going to have a whole bunch of other questions for you in the future. But it's a really interesting time. I think things are really interesting. The world, the way the world's moving right now politically, I imagine it's, there's going to be more and more incidents coming out in the future. So I really appreciate you coming on today and, and talking about this. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for Series 1 of the New Realities of Cybersecurity. We have discussed a few of the challenges and opportunities organisations are facing right now, but we'd love to get your feedback, comments and suggestions on future topics. You can send them through to me on Twitter at iantodd86 or email me direct at ian.todd at pwc.com. Again, thanks for listening.